It's good to be with you here this morning. And um, if I had just half the energy that those kids had when they were up here, it would be, be amazing. But, uh, but it's, it's exciting to see what God's doing. It's exciting to see them. Somebody said to me, whispered in my ear, that looks like job security, Pastor Rice. So, um, no, we're glad, I'm glad that you're here this morning and um, we have time to, to take a look at God's word. I don't know if you consider yourself to be a patient person. If you'd ask me that, I, I would say yes. I think probably actually most of my family would probably say that I tend to be a pretty patient person. Um, it wasn't that many years ago that, that my brother and I rode around the uh, northern part of, the lake, of lake Michigan. And, and on that trip, um, as we were riding, we didn't really have any kind of a schedule or itinerary or things like that. It was just, you know, I mean, we know we had to be done by a certain amount of time. And, um, but whenever we would stop, and my brother is a good storyteller, and he likes to talk, so we would stop, and maybe we would get a snack or go swimming or, or whatever. Um, I would always feel this, this unction inside of me. It's like, we need to get going. We need to keep moving. We need to keep riding. And, and um, I began to realize that, you know, I'm maybe not as patient of a person as what I would like to believe that I am. Um, and, and, and as I reflected on that, I, I realized that that may be true. And I don't know about you, but, you know, I guess if I asked you the question, are you a patient person? You know, it'd be interesting to see what kind of responses. I see some people shaking their heads, no. Um, okay. Well, so if you, if you do have your, uh, your bulletin, if you want to grab that, there's a place for you to take some notes on the back of that. Um, just the, the first thing is, is some definitions of patience. I'm going to give you a kind of a number, but there's a place for you to record some as well. Um, how would you define patience? How about this love for the long haul? Love for the long haul. Or, or this one, the capacity to accept delay, trouble, or suffering without giving up or giving in to, a, to frustration or bitterness. The, the capacity to, give, to accept delay, trouble, or suffering without giving up or without giving in to frustration or bitterness. Or, or how about this? It, it means taking what life offers even when it means suffering without lashing out. Um, and bringing God into this, maybe when things are delayed and aren't going the way you want, but you trust God that he has a plan, that he is a work, even in the midst of, of that delay. Well, we're going to talk about, about God's timing uh, this morning. And, and I don't know if, you know, if you're always kind of like, I, I think I, this is true somewhat of me, but if you always feel like you're kind of in a hurry, you always keep on moving forward, you, but you don't really actually ever relax and, and able to enjoy the present. I think God wants us to be able to do that, is to enjoy what's happening right, right now instead of always looking forward to what's next or always feeling like we've got to move forward. But one of the things that we're going to see in the passage we're going to look at this morning is that God's timetable and our schedule are often very different. God's timetable and our schedule are often very, very different. I think would you guys agree with me on that? Yeah, we struggle with time, don't we? Um, and as we look at today's passage, we're going to see an encounter that Jesus has with two individuals who are experiencing the timing of God in very, in very radically different ways. One of the persons has been suffering for a very long time, and the other person has very, been very, very recent and very urgent, but both of them, because of their encounter with Jesus, end up going further and deeper with Jesus than they ever anticipated. So I'm going to pray and just ask God to bless our, our time in his word, and then we'll dive in. Father, thank you, Lord, that we can have this opportunity right now just to pause and, and to spend some time in your word. Lord, thank you for, for giving this time. Lord, I pray that you would speak, that your word would have its way in each one of us. Lord, I pray that you would help me to speak what is true. Lord, that your spirit would, would be alive and active. And Lord, help us this morning. 
to, to glean that which it is that each one of us needs. Thank you for being here with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible, I'm going to ask you to, uh, to turn to Mark chapter 5, and uh, we're going to begin reading in verse 21. Mark chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse, in verse 21. We're going to meet two different characters, two different people in this account uh, specifically, and we're going to take a look at, at what it is they encounter, why they're coming to Christ. Um, so Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, it says, When Jesus had cro- again crossed over by the boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers, named Jairus, came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet, and he pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please, please come. Put your hand on her so that she will be healed and live. And so Jesus went with her. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. Let's just stop right there. So the first character that we meet here is, is a gentleman named Jairus. Um, Jairus is a, is a synagogue ruler. He's a man of authority. He's a man of, of standing in, in his community. He's a man who's well-respected with, a, with the position that he has within the city. And, and we notice what he's doing here. It says that he falls at the feet of Jesus. He's humbling himself before, before Christ. You know, if we saw grown men doing that in our culture today, I mean, we just don't see that, right? I mean, if we did, we'd say something's up. And, you know, the same thing would be true in Jewish culture. Um, this, this is something that just wouldn't happen for a grown man to, to bow himself before, before someone else. But, but what's going on here? It says he is pleading. He's pleading with Jesus to come immediately to his house. Why? Well, the, the passage tells us that he's desperate. It says that he has a little 12-year-old girl who, who is sick, who is dying, and, and he wants Jesus to come immediately to his house uh, because he's afraid that if he doesn't come immediately that she's going to die. And so Jesus agrees. He agrees to go, to go with her or to with him. Um, and I get just ask this question. I mean, how do you think, how do you think he's feeling about Jesus right now that Jesus is agreeing to go with him to his house? I mean, undoubtedly, he's probably now experiencing some hope. Uh, he's probably feeling like there's this sense of urgency that they need to keep moving and hopefully that this isn't going to be too late, that they're going to get there in time. Have you ever had that sense of urgency? You had that sense of urgency, but you're not sure that the people that are with you have that same sense of urgency? I... Um, I, I had a, a summer when I was in college where I get to do some traveling in Europe, and um, I, I know that, again, my personality, I, I wanted to try and see as many of the sites as we possibly could and stuff, and so I was traveling with this other guy, and I, I remember very vividly that um, I got up really early in the morning, and um, the guy that I was traveling with, he, he wanted to sleep until like 10 o'clock, and, and I remember wanting to go and shake him, it's like, you know, we need to get up, we need to go, we're not going to be able to see all the sites that we have to see in this day. And he was kind of like, man, chill out, you know, we'll, we'll see what we see. And I traveled with him for a month and a half. So, so we had to work that one out. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think all of us have been there, right? We're with people and they don't have the same sense of urgency that, that we do. We're going to see how that plays out in this passage as we continue on. Um, so we see, we see here the need of Jarius. Um, let's continue on. Beginning in verse 25, and it says, And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I can just touch his clothes, I will be healed. 
Immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. So we, we meet the second character, this, this, this woman who is sick, this, this woman who has this condition that's described to us. It says that she had this constant bleeding that wouldn't heal. And this condition that she had had lasted for 12 years. 12 years. That's a long time. For some of the students in my youth ministry, that is their entire lifetime. 12 years. But instead of getting better, it's only getting worse. Now, let's think about this for just a, mi- a moment. What would this condition have meant for her? What would it have meant? Well, undoubtedly, this was a chronic p- condition which it would have impacted her, her physically. But, but even more so, according to the Jewish ceremonial law, she would have been considered as unclean. And, and because she was unclean, she wouldn't even be allowed to go into the synagogue. And, and since she was unclean, she wasn't allowed to touch anybody else unless they become unclean or they become defiled. So think about that. No hugs, no, no touches of, of encouragement or, or comfort. And this has been going on for 12 years. And most likely she would have been in pain. She wouldn't probably have been able to have children because of this condition, which in her culture would have been a tremendously shameful full thing. She's been to many doctors, and none of their cures for treatment have worked. I mean, again, imagine the, the poking and, and, the, and, and the, the prodding and the questions, and, and nothing has worked. And, and you can just begin to imagine how, how humiliating and how, how discouraging that, that she would probably be because of that. And not only that, but the passage tells us here that, that she financially is bankrupt. She has spent all of her money that she has trying to find a cure. So she's, a, she's an outcast. She's lonely. Undoubtedly, all of her dreams of marriage and children and life and community, because she has to separate herself, all of those have been dashed. And, and we can just imagine that she probably has felt like giving up. She felt like, feel like she has no hope. But, but, but notice... Notice the contrast then between, between this woman and Jairus. So, so Jairus is a man, obviously. He's a ruler of the synagogue, and she is a woman, and she's not even allowed to enter into the, the synagogue. He's well-respected. She is rejected. He's a household name, and in this passage, she's unnamed. She doesn't even have a name. He has a daughter, the joy of his life, who, who for, is 12 years old and is deathly sick. Well, this woman has had a chronic illness that has lasted for 12 years. His request is urgent while her request has lingered for all of these years. But the one thing that is true for both of them is that they both need Jesus. They both need Jesus. Now, this woman comes up with a plan. She hears about Jesus. She must have heard about Jesus has done some miraculous things to heal, and maybe she thinks, just maybe, if she can come to Jesus that she could be healed. And she reasons, if I can just touch Jesus, she'll be cured. But I can ask this question. Why do you think, why do you think that she doesn't come to Jesus publicly and request to be healed? See, this is, this is her dilemma. Her dilemma is this. She's not even supposed to be in public. She's definitely not supposed to touch anybody. And what happens if people see her and they begin to score her, scorn her? For, for her to come to Jesus publicly would be for her to announce her sickness, that she's unclean, and that she needs help. 
And, and what happens if she comes to Jesus and he rejects her? What would the holy man say about her uncleanness? Undoubtedly, undoubtedly she's full of shame. Now, now guilt, guilt is when you violate God's law. So, for example, you know, one of the God's laws is thou shalt not steal. So if we steal, we know that we're, we're guilty. But it's something that lies outside of us. That's guilt. But shame is a result not just of what we have done, but it's a negative evaluation of yourself. So you feel awful about yourself. Guilt focuses on what? It's on what you've done, but, but shame focus, focuses on who. So, so guilt says, I did something that was bad. But shame says, I am something bad. Shame can occur because of something that we have done, but also it can occur because of something that has been done to us. And it makes us feel like we're damaged, like we're worthless, like, like we've been abused or, or, or like a disability or those kind of things. And, and, and my guess is that some of you here today, I certainly know this is true in our culture, that some of you here today may even be hearing the voices of shame in, in your own head, and they say things like, you're, you're, you're defective, you're, you're damaged, you're broken, you're flawed, you're dirty, you're ugly, you're, di- you're disgusting, you're worthless, you're unwanted, you're unlovable. And so this, this woman, she, she's thinking things like this, and if, and if Jesus rejects her, can she even survive the humiliation? And what happens? What happens if Jesus can't heal her? If Jesus can't heal, can she even survive the, the, the disappointment? I mean, how often is it true for you and for me? How often is it that we may have a secret sin or maybe even secret shame, and we need help, but we are unwilling to ask because of fear or because, because of our pride? And so she has this dilemma. It's to take her, her risk public and to admit her shame and possibly be healed or, or to continue to, to hide. And so she devises this plan. She's going to try to steal a miracle, steal a miracle from Jesus. And so she comes up behind him, and she touches him to be healed, and she wants to do it without his knowledge. And so she puts her plan into action. That's exactly what she does. And in verse 29 of this passage, it says here that the minute that she touches Jesus, that she is healed and she's freed from her suffering. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? I mean, she's experienced this for 12 years, and the moment she touches Jesus, it's gone. She's freed. She's healed in that instance. I want you to notice the response here of Jesus. Let's continue on, verse 30. It says, at once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and he asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask who touched you? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. And trembling with fear, she told him the truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Be freed from your suffering. So, so notice the response here of Jesus. Jesus stops and he realizes the power, he has lost power. Power has gone out, and someone else has gained it. And Jesus was on his way, remember, to Jairus, where, where his, her daughter is, is deathly ill and may, may die. She's close to death, and it's an urgent matter. And yet Jesus, what does he do? 
He stops. He, he takes time. He gives attention to this woman. Now, now, just think a minute. I mean, if you were the disciples, if you were Jairus, how would you feel about that delay? I mean, undoubtedly, this is causing tremendous anxiety for this father and worry for his daughter, right? And, and in situations like this, I, I know that, like, for me, I, I would feel like, come on, Jesus, we need to keep moving. We can't waste time. We, we need to go. And it would probably maybe cause some impatience in me and maybe some irritation. It's like, we need to go. Let's go. I mean, if, if a paramedic or a doctor was on their way to an emergency and they decided to stop and to take a break, I mean, in our, in our culture, we would cry, malpractice, that's wrong, you, that can't be. We would say, we, we would say that, that's reckless behavior. And yet, and yet Jesus will not be hurried. And he asked the question, who touched me? I mean, surely Jesus, who has just healed this woman, could have figured that out. I would suggest to you that Jesus is asking this question because he's giving her an opportunity to identify herself. Jesus is doing this because, is, is he doing this because he wants to publicly shame her? I don't think so. And so Peter identifies, Jesus, there's lots of people out here in the crowd. There's lots of people rubbing up against you and touching you. And Jesus says, no, no, no. This touch was special. This was a touch of faith, and power has gone out from me. Well, the woman, seeing that she can't get out of this, seeing that she's caught, it says here she comes trembling in fear, terrified before Jesus. And just like the man earlier, she as well falls at the feet of Jesus. And the reality is, this is the woman's worst nightmare. This is the last thing that she wanted. She just wanted to come in, steal a miracle, go unnoticed, and go home. Right? And now she is being exposed publicly in front of a holy rabbi in her humiliation and her rejection in front of everybody. Now, now J.D. Greer, as a pastor, when, when he spoke about this passage, he said this. He said this might be the most profound moment in the Gospels. This moment right here. The most profound moment in the Gospels because it answers the most basic question of all religion. And this is the question. What is it like to be exposed in all of our shame and ugliness and mess before a holy God? What is it like? And notice in this passage Jesus' response. Do you see what he says? In verse 34, Jesus says to her, daughter, daughter. He doesn't say stranger or ma'am. He, he, he doesn't say sister or friend. He says this intimate term, daughter. I mean, Tim Keller says it's like saying to her, sweetheart. This girl who has felt like an outcast is being invited by the God of the universe to become part of his family. I mean, how do we tend to respond to people that we consider to be social outcasts? I mean, how do, we, how do we respond to people that we would consider to be unclean? I mean, think about it. Are there people in our culture today that when you think about them and their sin, that you're just so repulsed by them, you don't even want to be around them? You don't want to talk to them? You turn the TV off? You would like to ignore them? Well, that's this woman. As far as it's true in that culture, that is this woman. I mean, you could just hear the disciples crying out and saying to Jesus, Jesus, don't, don't touch her, right? Ignore her. 
we need to keep moving. We need to keep going. We, we need to get out of here. And yet that's not what Jesus does. He has time for her. He doesn't ignore her. He doesn't try to put space between him and her. Instead, he acknowledges her and he seeks to minister to her. And I ask this question, I mean, do you have time in your schedule to minister to people, especially when it wasn't planned? Jesus does. And notice, notice the kind of, again, the contrast. And, and I think that this is intentional, honestly, between these two. I think the, the way that, that, that Mark put this gospel together contrasts these two. Because look, it says, Jairus is a dad who's pleading the cause of his 12-year-old daughter, and this lady... For 12 years has no one who's been pleading her cause. And so Jesus pleads for her. He won't just let her steal a miracle in secret because he wants to do something even greater in her. He wants her to know that she is loved and accepted and cherished. When you come to Jesus, what are you seeking? You know, oftentimes we come to Jesus because we want life to go well, right? We, we want life to go according to our plans, and so we ask God to bless our, our plans. And, and at times we come to Jesus, right, because we want healing. We, we, we need wisdom. We, we, we want all these other things. We need strength. And, you know, there's nothing the matter with that. There's nothing the matter with coming to God. I mean, we're instructed in God's Word to come in our time of need. But my question is this. How do you respond when God doesn't answer your prayers like you anticipate? Do you realize, I mean, I think this passage is telling us perhaps when that happens, when God doesn't answer us, we, we think he ought. Maybe God's wanting to do an even greater work. I mean, how often are we blind to, the, blind to the greatest need of our own hearts? Our greatest need is not a physical healing. That's what this woman thought. That's not our greatest need. Our greatest need is not for the circumstances of our lives to be changed. The greatest need of our lives is to have an encounter with Jesus Christ. For us to learn to find our satisfaction and our worth in our relationship with him. And really the question is, is he enough? And so I could ask, how do you respond when Jesus doesn't respond to your desires as you think he ought? And I want you to notice in this passage, Jesus just doesn't want this woman, to just experience physical healing. If that was the case, he could let it go. He wants her to experience so much more than that. He wants her to experience social healing and emotional healing, and ultimately he wants her to experience spiritual healing. He wants her to find peace in her soul as a result of her encounter with Jesus. And so look, look at verse 34. In verse 34, he tells her, as a result of your faith in me, you are healed. Then he says this, go in peace and be freed from your suffering. She's not just physically healed. She's spiritually healed. And she can now experience inner peace. Inner peace. See, this woman comes to Jesus, and she gets so much more, so much more than she ever bargained for when she touched Jesus. I mean, what typically happens when an unclean thing and a clean thing come in contact? Or I could say it this way. What happens when, when someone's sick comes in contact with a healthy person? 
I mean, does the healthy person make the sick person well? Wouldn't that be awesome if you, we were healthy, right? We could go visit somebody in the hospital, and as a result of our visit there, that they would get healthy again? Wouldn't that be awesome? That's not the way it works, is it? Right? I mean, oftentimes, the healthy people go to the hospital, and right? And we, we, when we interact, and we get, the healthy people get sick, right? What happens when a dirty thing comes in contact with a clean thing? What happens then? Well, the, the clean thing is made unclean, Right? But when this unclean woman touches Jesus, she is made clean. But what happens to her uncleanness? Jesus takes it. Jesus takes her uncleanness upon himself. I mean, you realize in this passage, Jesus is on his way to the cross where he's going to bear our sin and bear our shame. In Isaiah 53, 4, it says it this way, Surely he took our infirmities and he carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, see, that's what she got. Peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. See, that's what Jesus wants to do with us who are so or full of shame. He wants to bring us peace, but we've got to be willing to come out of hiding. We've got to be willing to come to Jesus. All right, now, Jesus has stopped to restore this unclean woman, and Jairus gets word of his daughter. Let's continue on. Verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. Can can you imagine? I, I can't. Imagine getting those words. Your daughter's died. It's too late. I mean, what do you think the, the emotions of, of this father is feeling? I mean, probably sadness and fear, disillusionment, confusion, probably anger. Jesus, if you just hadn't stopped. Right? But notice Jesus looks calmly at him and he says, Don't be afraid. Just believe. I mean, In essence, Jesus is saying to Jairus, trust me, be patient. There's there's no need to hurry. See, God's sense of timing confounds us, right? God rarely operates on our schedule. God's timing often makes us feel so impatient because it seems like God is delaying in an irrational and uncaring way. Uh, And yet, what does God say? God says, that is not true. That is not what I am doing I am not hurried even though I do love you. As a matter of fact, God says he will not be hurried because he does love us. And if you impose your understanding of scheduling and timing on me, you will struggle to feel loved by me. You know, there's an account in John 11, and and if you remember that account, that's an account where, where Mary and Martha send word to Jesus about Lazarus who is sick and that he's going to die. And in John 11, 4 through 6, it says this. When Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. And it goes, the passage goes on and says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. I mean, this passage clearly teaches us that Jesus loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And yet he did not respond immediately. And it says he delayed not because he didn't love them. 
He says he, resp he responded the way he did because he did love them. How often do we think the opposite? Well, let's continue on, verse 37. It says, he did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the house of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. And he went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? This child is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed. They laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and they went in where the child was. He took her by the hand, and he said to her, Talitha Kalm, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up, and she walked around. She was 12 years old. After this, they were completely astonished. Jairus came to Jesus, thinking that he was going to have to trust Jesus just enough for Jesus to get to his house, hoping that his child wouldn't die before he arrived. And Jesus demanded something so much greater. Jesus demanded, he looked at Jairus and he said, trust me, but don't just treat, trust me for healing, trust me for resurrection. Well, that was a lot more than Jairus thought. Trust me for resurrection. And when he, we come to Jesus, he often demands more of us than we thought we needed to give but he, and he gives us so much more than we ever anticipated. I mean, that was certainly true in this account here for this unclean woman. That is certainly true here for Jairus. I mean, take the woman who was healed. Jesus demanded that she go public. And as an unclean woman, to touch a rabbi was taboo. And why did Jesus do that to her? What, he, did he do it because he, he did it because he wanted her to get rid of this inaccurate understanding of who Jesus was. She saw Jesus as one she needed to be afraid of and fear. Instead, he wanted to understand that he loved her. He wanted a relationship with her so that she might experience a life transformed and become a follower of Jesus. If you go to Jesus, he may ask of you more than you originally planned to give, but he can give you more than you infinitely ever dared think that he ever would. So what's going on in this passage? I mean, to us it seems as if Jesus is delaying for, for no reason. But we don't have all the facts. I mean, and so often God delays, which seems like malpractice to us, when actually it's an act of God's grace. When we sit in judgment of God and from our perspective conclude that God is blowing it, we're exercising arrogance. How often do we acknowledge that the God of the universe, the creator of all, right, that that's who he is, and yet we act like we know better than he does because he's not doing what we think he ought. And so I got to ask this. I mean, is right now, is, is God delaying something in your life? I mean, are you ready to give up? Are you being really impatient with, with God? I mean, is it possible that is in this passage you just don't have all the facts? Is it possible that, that God's got a greater work and right now you're just not seeing it? The answer is trust Jesus, is trust Jesus. I mean, Jairus was a religious, well-respected man. This, this woman, un, un, unnamed, outcast woman. And I don't know, maybe you identify yourself more with one versus the other, but the reality is they both needed Jesus. I don't know what circumstances you're walking through in your life right now. I mean, possibly you're feeling weighed down by shame just as this unclean woman. 
And you've been calling out to God and it seems like he's not been answering. Or perhaps you're like this, this, this dad and you're carrying around this, this urgent, heavy, heavy burden and you're struggling with God's timing in your life. But again, the reality is they both need Jesus. They both need to trust in him. Jesus went to the cross to bear your sins on his body so that you could go home in peace. And just as in the case of this unclean woman, Jesus lost his power so that you could gain strength. On the cross, he lost his life so that you would never have to lose it, so that you could live forever. If you're impatient with Jesus, let him do what he wants. He knows what he is doing. He loves you more than you will ever know. And in the very end of 2 Corinthians, Paul ends 2 Corinthians 13, verse 4. He says it this way. He says, For to be sure, Christ was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power And so likewise, we are weak in him. And yet, by God's power, we live with him to serve you. I mean, perhaps tonight or this morning here, you you, you sit here and you've never entered into this relationship with Jesus. Today, perhaps you see yourself that you, you need to come to Jesus in faith and you need to repent. He is holy, we are not. He died willingly to take the punishment of our sins. And if you are willing to surrender your life to him and by faith trust in him, he will take your guilt, he will take your shame, he will take the penalty and forgive you so that you can have new life passed on to you. Or perhaps you're like this woman who was caught, who, who has carried the shame because of things that were done or because of things that have been done to her. I mean, and if that's, the, if that's you, I want you to hear the words of Jesus. Hear the response that he says to this woman. He says, daughter. This is a new identity in Christ, and it outweighs any other identity that you would have. You are not what other people say about you. You are not what others have done to you. You are not what you think. You are what Jesus Christ has declared over you, and if you have trusted in Christ, you are a precious, beloved child. We sang about that this morning. You are created and redeemed specifically by him for his purpose. And the greatest power for new life in Christ, I'll say that again, the greatest power for new life in Christ begins in a new identity. You are a precious child of God in Christ. And new life begins when you begin to start to see yourself as God sees you. You are not the lies that others say about you. You are not what has been done to you. You are not what the voices in your head say to you. You are what Christ has declared to be true about you. And he loved you so much, he shed his blood for you to bring you back, to make you his very own. Let's close in in prayer. Can you pray with me? Father, we admit we struggle with timing. Lord, we struggle with seeing you in the midst of, of our lives. God, I thank you for these two accounts. Lord, they're they're kind of contrasted for us, juxtaposed against each other. Lord, they they really do help us. Lord, one is is struggling with the urgency, and one has been chronic for so long. And yet, Father, we see that they both needed you. And Lord, as we sit here this morning, that's true of us. Lord, I I don't know. I I don't know what's going on in, in the lives of those that are sitting here this morning, but I know this. Every one of us needs an encounter with you. God, I pray for those who maybe they've been struggling with an issue for a long, long time. Lord, maybe they are struggling with shame. 
something that's happened to them that has just got them where they just believe all of these lies. Lord, I pray today that you would help them to come to you, that you would help them to see, hear your voice saying to them, son, daughter, I love you. I died for you that you could be made new, that I can give you a new identity. Lord, help them to hear your words. Lord, I pray for those today who, who maybe they're carrying a real a heavy burden. And Lord, maybe they've been bringing that burden to you and it doesn't seem to be making any difference. God, I pray today, help them to continue to trust in you. Help them to see, Father, that, this, that you're, you're at work, even though they may not be able to see it. God, I pray that you would encourage their hearts. Father, help them to realize that you want to do even greater thing maybe than they even believe was possible. So I pray, Father, that you would help them even as, as this father he needed to trust. And Jesus, even when he didn't fully understand, even when it didn't make sense, that you love them and that you are up to good in their life. Father, do the work. Do the work that only you can do in each of our hearts and lives. powerful truth that the God of the universe loves us. But you know, um, there's going to be a day we're going to worship God perfectly when we burn heaven. There's a reason God left us here. Because there's a world out there that needs that message. And a lot of them think that we as Christians hate them. And they think that the God that we represent hates them. There's people in our world today that they have shame and they are clueless as to what to do with it. They have absolutely no idea. And they run all kinds of things. And the things that they run to end up destroying them. There's only one place to run. There's people in our world today that they carry burdens. I mean, heavy burdens. That dad, his daughter's sick, that's a heavy burden. And they have no idea where to run. They don't know that they need to run to Jesus. I, I might just my encouragement and challenge to you guys as you end, as you leave this place this week. This message is not just for us. We need it, for sure. We need it because we need to run to Jesus too. But this message is for all those people out there who have absolutely no idea where to run. So have your ears open. Listen to conversations be afraid to enter in. There really is a God in the universe who loves them more than they'll ever know. And he wants them to become their children, his children as well. To become their, a son or a daughter of the God of the universe. So may, as we're dismissed, may God help us. May God help us to apply this to us, but may God help us to use this in a world that's so hurting. You are dismissed. Thanks for being here.